This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you've called us to a new identity in our baptism. May we always put on this new identity and live from the grace you have given us in it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So a friend of mine from college the other day wrote that the headlines so far in 2020 make 2019 look like 1996. It is an anxious time to be alive. It's an unsettling time to be alive. And those of you who lived through the mid-90s know exactly what my friend meant. The Berlin Wall had fallen just a few years before that, and the Soviet Union had just collapsed, and so the Cold War with Russia was over, and the United States was the sole remaining superpower on the world stage. Philosopher Francis Fukuyama, just a few years prior, had written The End of History and The Last Man, in which he concluded that the titanic 20th century collision between fascist and communist totalitarian regimes and the liberal democratic regimes of the West had come to an end, and the liberal, the liberal democratic regimes had won. So now we could expect the world to be entirely remade in the image of the United States. That was Fukuyama's projection. And everyone could now enjoy the fruits of that victory and peace with ever-increasing political and economic liberty and largesse. So who now would venture upon the future that Fukuyama sketched? As the 2020 election approaches, the rancor that's expressed within our country grows ever more extreme. A Manichaean, hyperpartisan style has crept in and has now taken deep root in our public discourse. There's a recent study that I read this week that indicates that some 20% of Democrats and 15% of Republicans believe that the country would be better off if large numbers of opposing partisans in the public today just died. The authors of that study rightly indicate that this is a shockingly brutal sentiment. Both among Republicans and Democrats, 9% believe that violence against the opposing side is justified at least on occasion. And the study goes on to say that when imagining an electoral loss in 2020, larger percentages of both parties approve of the use of violence, 18% for Democrats and 13% for Republicans. It's unsettling. In the international order, the United States no longer stands as the world's sole superpower. Russia is resurgent on the world stage. And China has a new international prominence. We're disturbed by the rise of an online culture which has changed the nature of geopolitics in fundamental ways. We're not even sure about all the consequences of those changes. We see policy decisions being announced and implemented on Twitter. We see revolutions in Syria and Hong Kong being carried out using Facebook as the platform. What does this mean? Kai-Fu Lee, who is a venture capitalist and a commentator on AI research, has said that although there's hundreds of companies pouring research into AI, uh, there's only seven that have emerged as the new giants of corporate AI research. Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. I haven't even heard of all of those. <laughs> but these seven giants, in effect, Kai-Fu Lee says, have morphed into what the nations were 50 years ago. They have a kind of public prominence and power that the nations had 50 years ago. Again, we don't know what the consequences of all of this is. But we do know, we can say for sure, there will be geopolitical consequences. 
So if there's one word that I would use to describe our cultural moment right now, it is anxious. We live in an anxious age. All of us are grappling for some big rocks to hold on to, some certainties about the social and political order that are fixed and do not seem to evaporate overnight. We want something to hold on to which will anchor our personal and corporate identities, against which we can set our expectations and by which we can illuminate our steps. In short, what we're looking for is identity. So in that 1992 book, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, there is one aspect of Francis Fukuyama's analysis that still feels very up-to-date. Fukuyama was worried that the new equilibrium and the confidence which he saw in the West in the wake of the demise of the Soviet Union would end up subverting itself. And that's because Fukuyama saw that the chief challenge facing the West after the fall of its chief ideological opponent was a weakening of identity. Who are we? What is the story or the stories by which we can orient ourselves and live a worthy life? What even constitutes a virtuous life, a life which is well-lived? Our identity is the most powerful motive force in our lives. Our identity is ultimately about the story that orients us and anchors us in the world by which we can act meaningfully. Identity is therefore about what motivates and drives us. And what Fukuyama was saying is that Americans did not know how to answer the question of identity in 1992. And I think it's safe to say we've become less and less clear about how to do so in the intervening years. Fukuyama actually stole a line from C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man to illuminate this problem of identity. The threat, Fukuyama said, was that we were becoming men without chests. What that means is that we were becoming people whose technological proficiency was unprecedented. In fact, it was greater than any civilization in world history, but we had forgotten how to live. We produced mountains upon mountains of cheap consumer goods and extremely pleasant urban utopias, but all of the meaning and the transcendence has been drained out of our lives. We know more information than ever, but we have less and less wisdom to be able to use that knowledge rightly. We are people who, in the immortal words of the Catholic novelist Walker Percy, are getting all A's and flunking life. And the church in this milieu has become sleepy. It's become accustomed to safety and comfort. The church, far from proclaiming the gospel that Christ is the true king who shakes the foundations of all world empires, has settled for helping its people become well-adjusted to the American way of life. When the church does this, When the church succumbs to this temptation, we lose the thread of our story. Our identity in Christ becomes obscured. The church becomes weak and fearful. We lose confidence that we should share Christ's healing with a broken world, that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and victory over sin and death is public truth, which is to proclaim, which is to be proclaimed to everybody and to every nation. If it is public truth, then worship is not a mere humanizing ritual which we do to give a little meaning to our lives in a world where all the transcendence has been sucked out. That's not what Jesus wants for his church. He wants us to be renewed in our sense of distinctness from the central animating values of American life and culture. He wants us to be a peculiar people who as a corporate body represent his kingdom, which is, like, which is unlike any other kingdom in this world. 
And so in this anxious age, which is characterized by the rise of these new technologies and political instability, we need to recover the critical distinction between the Christian we and the American we. Worship is how we are formed into an embassy of the kingdom of God in Christ here in the kingdom of America. The most important thing about us, the central aspect of our identity as Christians, is that we are baptized so that we can become ambassadors of the ministry of Christ's reconciliation to the world. It is not that as Christians we cease to be good citizens of our nation and good neighbors in our communities, but we are those things not because they are ends and of themselves, but because they are aspects of how we represent Christ to the world and call everyone to worship and serve him. Do you understand the critical and fundamental difference between those two postures? There's a fundamental difference in terms of motivation and in terms of discernment between one who is a good citizen because one is baptized and because one is a good American. Do you understand? There's a huge difference. There's a fundamental difference in our ability to discern right from wrong, goodness from evil, what is true from what is false. And the feast which we celebrate today, the baptism of our Lord, is the feast that celebrates the distinct identity we have been given in Christ. If we can sum up the New Testament teaching about baptism, it is that it involves a change of identity. Every passage in the New Testament that describes baptism makes this claim. In baptism, Paul says, we are plunged into Christ's death and brought up into new life in his resurrection. In baptism, we are washed with the washing of regeneration or of new life. In baptism, St. Peter says we are plucked out of the turbulent floods of sin and death which dominate this world and placed in safety on board the ark of Christ's church. And in that same passage in 1 Peter 3, St. Peter even goes so far as to say that baptism now saves you, just as being on board the ark in Noah's day would save those who were on board that ship. So every passage about baptism tells us that our identity is being reforged as we receive baptism and live out the reality of that baptism. Jesus is committed to the renewal of the church in America, and that means he is committed to the recovery of the distinctiveness that is given to us in our baptism. It is a new identity. It is an identity that separates us out from the rest of those who surround us. The church becomes compelling and an exciting place to be insofar as we recover that identity. The baptized are those who are living more and more fully in the story of Jesus. And so it is to the story of Jesus, as Matthew tells it, that we must turn. And in this text before us today, we find Jesus submitting to baptism by John the Baptist. The New Testament in general speaks about being baptized into Christ and about being baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity. So we need to spend some time unpacking why it is that we see Jesus here submitting to John's baptism, which is the baptism for repentance. How is Jesus' baptism here and our baptism in the name of the Trinity related to one another? Here's what we need to understand. The background to John's baptisms in the River Jordan is a profound and disquieting sense among faithful Jews in John's day that something has gone desperately wrong with Israel. Israel has lost the thread of its own story. Israel has lost its strength. It has become weak and unmoored. It has become sick with idolatry and moral confusion. And the prophets were a great light given by God to shine a light into that situation. But for 400 years, there's been no illumination. 
And now suddenly out of the wilderness comes John, the greatest of all the prophets, and he is a light that once again illuminates Israel's condition. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that John was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John is a great prophet, a great burning and shining lamp, declaring God's opposition both to the corruption of the world and the corruption that was inside Israel. John's baptism was designed to create a sense of differentiation in the people of Israel, to create a sense of distance between those who received it and the culture that they inhabited. John was calling those baptized to a change of identity, in other words. He was recalling them to the true identity that they bore as the people of God. Israel was elect from all the nations to be the bearer of God's salvation to the world. But Israel, as I said, had lost the, had lost the thread of that story. On the one hand, they had come to see that election as cause for arrogance and disdain expressed towards the Gentiles, the surrounding nations around them. They saw it as an opportunity for one-upmanship rather than as a sober responsibility to bear witness to God's character and his glory to the idolatrous nations that surrounded them. And on the other hand, and hypocritically, Israel had simultaneously become conformed to the practices that characterized the nations around them. It had become segregated in the wrong ways and conformed in the wrong ways to the surrounding world. And so John was recalling them to their true identity, their true story. And as John is doing this, Jesus comes from Galilee in the north to the river Jordan to be baptized by John. Now Jesus is the one person who does not need to be baptized because he has no sins from which he needs to repent. John recognizes this just as he knows that he had sins from which he needed to be baptized. And that's why he's hesitant to baptize Jesus. Look at what he says. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He understands the incongruity of what is happening. But Jesus tells him that for this moment, it is proper for John to administer to Jesus rather than vice versa. And then he adds, it is proper to do so in order to fulfill all righteousness. This language of fulfilling all righteousness is really important because it's unique to Matthew. Matthew has a particular concern with Jesus as the one who fulfills Israel's covenant with God. For Matthew, Jesus is a new Moses, leading Israel into a new exodus, not, not from slavery to a world power, but out of the deep sources of human enslavement, the world, the flesh, and the devil. For Matthew, Jesus sums up the vocation of Israel in a single person. He's not just the new Moses either. He's also the servant that Isaiah describes in the later chapters of his book. He embodies everything that Israel was meant to be. As I said, Israel was meant to be God's instrument for the salvation of the nations. The salvation that Israel is to offer the nations is to show them what a restored and a renewed humanity looks like. Israel is charged with showing the world what Adam and Eve look like, actually. What the healed human being looks like, serving as prophets, priests, and kings to the Lord. But of course, Israel, just like the rest of humanity, is mired in sin, and it cannot fulfill this charge. And so in Isaiah's vision, there is one person raised up from Israel, with Israel's stories and songs filling his heart, who will be Israel concentrated and intensified, who will sum up Israel, and fulfill the covenant that God had made with Israel. And so in fulfilling that covenant, the servant will show what authentic human existence looks like. And he will offer that compelling vision as a gift to the world, as the salvation to the nations. 
So the servant at once fulfills all righteousness in completing or fulfilling the covenant that God set out with Israel and in so doing offers salvation to the nations. So there's this lingering question. If Israel is not able to fulfill this calling, how is the servant going to be able to do it? That's a question that Isaiah doesn't answer. But he bears witness to the fact that it's going to happen. Now Matthew, who's been bowled over by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, is in a position to answer this question. It is that the God of Israel himself has become incarnate in the servant. The servant is both fully a human being and fully the God of Israel come among his people to save them from their sins. This is precisely how Matthew depicts Jesus. In the background of Matthew is always the suffering servant of Isaiah's songs. In fact, Matthew quotes extensively from our passage from Isaiah 42 in chapter 12 of his gospel. Go look it up later. For Matthew, Jesus is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he proclaims justice to the nations and in his name the nations will put their hope. And here in our passage today, as the voice from heaven speaks, it recalls exactly this language from Isaiah chapter 42, but with this subtle difference. The servant is called the Son. It is the Son of God who is God, who is also the servant who fulfills the covenant with Israel. When Jesus receives baptism from John, then what he is doing is embodying Israel. He does not need to be recalled to this identity or renewed in this identity in any way as the others who receive baptism do because he is without sin. He always already embodies this identity, but he puts it on. He demonstrates, he shows forth this identity. And it's only because he is God that his humanity is without sin. This shows us in a bright image that we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot renew ourselves. Only by the grace of God is it possible to be a people who are reconciled to him. Only by the grace of God can the people of God be renewed in their identity. And so as the servant who is the son of God receives baptism, there is a massive incongruity. But he is identifying with us that we might also be united with him in his baptism and receive everything that he has, all of the gifts that he has. He accepts baptism because it is the only way in which he can fulfill all of the conditions of this covenant that was given to Israel. It is how he fulfills all righteousness. And as he is fulfilling the covenant, he is showing the whole world what it looks like to be truly human. Because remember, the mission that Israel was given The salvation that it was to offer to the nations was to show the world what restored and renewed humanity looks like. And so as Jesus receives baptism, he's showing us that authentic human existence looks like living as Jesus does, because Jesus is the servant who embodies the fulfillment of the covenant with Israel. The conviction of the New Testament is that all who are baptized share in this identity of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptism gives us solidarity and union with Jesus in a way that can only be described as mystical. It is an immersion or a washing which cleanses us by being united to the identity that he has as the true son of God and the true servant of Israel. And so baptism in the New Testament becomes baptism into Jesus, which is always expressed as baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because we recognize that the way in which Jesus was able to fulfill the covenant is that he is at once God and the servant. 
And being united to him gives us access to the triune God through the humanity of Jesus. So when we are baptized, it is not fundamentally different from the baptism that Jesus received. In baptism, we are given a change of identity. But it is the new identity of Jesus who fulfills everything Israel was meant to be and everything humanity was meant to be. When we are baptized, we become part of the people who live by the story of Jesus. The identity we have in this story makes it possible to be confident and sure in uncertain times. In an anxious age when the international order is being shaken and new technologies create profound disquiet, we are a people who know what the true story of humanity is. We know the one who, as Isaiah says, will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. When we receive baptism, we are marked with this identity forever. And we need to return over and over again to it, to be renewed in this identity. And thank God the grace that we are offered in baptism never ceases. It never comes to an end. We are renewed in this baptismal identity every time we come together for worship. Every time we witness and participate in baptisms of new disciples of Jesus. Every time we receive his power and presence in the Eucharist. Every time we study the scriptures which testify to him. If we want to be renewed in our baptismal identity, if we want the church to be faithful, to be a compelling witness in this anxious age, we must persevere in these practices. These are our weapons with which we fight for our souls and the souls of every one of our neighbors. We're about to witness baptisms now, and I urge you to come to the font to witness and to participate in what is taking place. These children who are to be baptized are being claimed for Jesus, marked with his stamp forever. They are called to follow him in becoming renewed and restored human beings, empowered by the grace of the triune God, which is truly administered in the sacrament. So I urge you to come and also to be renewed in your baptismal identity, to truly renounce the power of sin, death, and the devil in your life, to put on the story of Christ again, so that we may truly be his body, living by his grace and his power, to magnify the name of Jesus, glorify his name to the world. Amen.